Hi, and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinSwift.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the group. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jukes Goldfine, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, The First Guide of Funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be glad you did. It's fun to read. It's informative. And if you love music, especially funk, it's a can't miss. Um, makes a great gift. And, uh, you know, have a couple copies around the house. Okay. <laughs> Whether you're watching or listening, I thank you very much for your continued interest and support in the program. You can see the show at funkinstuff.net or on YouTube. And you can also uh, hear it in its podcast version on iTunes or from other leading podcast providers. Also, subscribe. Hit the subscribe button on YouTube on the Funkin' Stuff channel, and that'll connect you into all things truth and rhythm. You'll get early premieres and lots of fun, great stuff. It's free. Tell friends, tell family, continue to support the show. This is your show, and uh, we appreciate that support, and I do very much. So thank you, thank you, thank you. This episode features drummer Keith Kilgo, the sensational funk jazz group, The Blackbirds, which was founded in the early 1970s by renowned trumpeter and, at the time, chairman of Howard University's Department of Jazz Studies, Donald Byrd. The Blackbirds released seven albums from 1974 to 1980 and notched 10 top 40 R&B hits. Those were Do It Fluid, Walking in Rhythm, Happy Music, Rock Creek Park, City Life, Flying High, Time is Moving, Soft and Wet, Supernatural Feeling, and Unfinished Business. Walking Rhythm and Happy Music were also top 20 pop hits. Three of their albums reached the top 35 of Billboard's Top 200 Albums chart, and they placed five albums in the top 15 of the R&B Albums chart. Four of those went top 10. The Blackbirds only recorded one album after 1977, and it came and went without much fanfare. In 1999, Kilgo and several other original members reunited to begin performing again, and that eventually led to a comeback album in 2012. Since their heyday, the band's influence has only grown, as many of their beats were sampled and nicked by the hip-hop community, and their popularity helped fuel the UK's acid jazz and jazz funk movements. Today, they continue to hit the stage both domestically and abroad. Here, Kilgo discusses his musical upbringing, his college years and formation of the Blackbirds, the ba uh, band's albums and tracks, why the group disbanded, the many sides of mentor Donald Byrd, his current position as a music educator, the qualities that make for a great musician, bringing the group back together, and current and upcoming projects. It's time for Truth and Rhythm to get in rhythm with the man who continues to walk in rhythm, Mr. Keith Kilgo. I am so pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Command Center, the man who kept it all in the pocket for one of the great funk jazz R&B bands of all time. I'm speaking of drummer Keith Kilgo from the mighty, mighty Blackbirds. Keith, how are you? Thank you so much for joining me today. Doing great, man. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thank you. Good, good. Where am I talking to you from today? Uh, this is where I teach. Uh, I teach at uh, Tech Prep Friendship Public Charter School. I uh, run the Fine Arts Department, 
and we do a variety of different things. You know, we do marching band, of course, um, concert band, working on jazz band, choir, and that kind of thing. It's a STEM school, but uh, they brought me on board to bring in the arts. So uh, I, I've been here almost five years, and it's a it's a very interesting experience. I, my initial reason I was te- I taught in DC public schools for many years, and my reasoning for trying to come to kind of a hybrid school that had a middle school and a high school is I felt if I could start the students uh, in sixth grade, or maybe fifth or sixth grade, playing. The instrument, drums, clarinet, flute, violin, whatever, that it would be so much easier for them to continue music once they got into high school versus teaching in high school and starting a, a, a student who's never played before in the ninth grade, <clears throat> which puts them at a great disadvantage if they would like to you know, pursue music as a career. Because by the time they got to the 12th grade, they would be probably about four or five years behind on that instrument in terms of competition, in terms of reading, in terms of, you know, being able to kind of catch up with where everybody else is. Because as we know, if you look at a regular education from first grade to 12th grade, uh, with a summer break, kids miss about three years of school anyway. So my, my goal was to fill that gap in with music so that they would kind of get caught up. So by the time they got to the 11th grade, they could audition for honors band. They could go to Norfolk because they pay a lot of money for students from D.C. <laughs> you know, uh, I had one young lady who, who unfortunately she didn't take the scholarship, but she had a scholarship to Grambling. They pay them $6,000 a year to play in the marching band and $4,000 a year to play in the concert band. So you can go to college and make ten grand a year. I wish it had happened when I was in school. Okay, <laughs> but mine was not didn't look anywhere like that. But there's so many opportunities, and 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 not just in music and dance and, and art and all that kind of thing. So that's my goal is to to create an educational uh, appendage to the STEM uh, academia aspect of, of, of education and, and include those things for the music because I don't think we really uh, treat it very fairly in the market, you know. That's fantastic. I mean, it's so much needed. That's just been a tragedy how music's gotten out of the schools, you know, to a great degree around the country. And my son's 14, he's playing alto sax, and he's uh, getting ready to go to high school. Unfortunately, his middle school had a music program, right? you know? And um, I played alto sax myself beginning in grade school, you know, and mm-hmm. they still had it in grade school. Right, right, <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. So but see, that's the thing. Uh, uh, music is just, it's none other than, it's, oh, it's just a comparative, compare it, you can compare it to soccer or T-ball. Those kids, when my son started playing T-ball when he was like six, you know, five, six years old. Then he went from there to the next level, then middle school, then, you know, all the way up to, he, he didn't go into the pros or anything like that. But that's the kind of background he had in in, in baseball. And believe me, B, uh, and his biggest issue was that he lived on the East Coast. And the East Coast is basketball, it ain't baseball. And so when he got down to Rice and to Texas and to Florida and California, them guys, they eat and sleep baseball. And so he could see up and it wasn't because he didn't, he didn't, you know, he wasn't competitive. He just wasn't at that level because they play baseball all year round. 
you know, a lot of them are homeschooled and that's all they do is play baseball. So when you, you're getting pitched at, at, in high school, like 120 mile an hour, you know, ball, you know, it's a whole lot different from that 75 mile an hour ball, you know, over here. So, uh, and, and seeing that void, I, I see it really in music because I mean, you know, the kids got to start man, four or five years old in the music in order to be, by the time he or she is 18, be in that competitive state, you know, where they can truly use music as a, as a solid viable career and not just the music aspect of it, the, the historical aspect of it, the, the audio visual aspect of it, the technology aspect, all those things need to be in sync by the time they're ready to, to, you know, get out here into the world. Absolutely. You need every edge you can get. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, that's fantastic. Well, good, good for you, man. That's great Thank to hear. You. Um, so going back to your childhood, <laughs> when and how did you first get into the drums and music? Well, my, my father is a musician. Uh, he played with a group called the JFK Quintet, which was um, Andrew White, Ray Codrington, Walter Booker, uh, and Joe Chambers. And so pretty much, and my father played, you know, around D.C. a lot. And uh, they pretty much made their home the Bohemian Caverns. And every Saturday at my house was a rehearsal. So at these rehearsals, uh, Mickey Newman was the drummer at the time. Um, they, he left his drums. And, you know, as soon as they left, I came in, you know. And I started banging on his drums. And um, in those days, we listened to records. I don't, they, you know, they, they still might listen to them now, but we listened to records. And you know, my whole musical education at that point was watching and being observant and watching people play, and reading the line of notes on Blue Note Records because Blue Note Records gave you all the information you needed to know about the artist that they and what time signature it was in, what key it's in, and blah, 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 blah. And the experiences that they had in terms of writing the songs. So that was kind of my impetus, so my introduction into, into playing music. And I didn't really receive a drum set until later on when actually my father thought he heard of somebody actually keeping some time in the basement. He says, wow, wait a minute. Maybe this guy may not be fooling, <laughs> pulling my leg after all. So... Um, Got us some little raggedy drum set, whatever. It didn't matter to me. It was brand new. I, to me, I didn't care. And, and so from there, you know, I just started playing and, and hanging out with my dad. And um, I got to play with with um, Eddie Harris. I sat in with the Art Blakey Big Band. Um, played with Miles Davis, Stanley Turrentine, uh, with Shirley Scott. Um, that shows how old I am. Uh, <laughs> and Bobby Timmons. And so I just started playing. You know, uh, I didn't really study. I was studying piano with Roberta Flack for a while when I was in uh, middle school. And um, I, one Saturday, um, yeah, I told her I was sick. I couldn't, I can't come to class. I'm, I'm sick. <laughs> okay. But I was lying. And so I went to go to see Miles Davis at the Bohemian Caverns. And as uh, soon as I walked down the steps, she was standing there. So I thought you were sick. You're fired. <laughs> so that was the end of my piano lessons with Roberta Fleck. But she's I've loved her. She's loved me all these years. So and we've stayed in touch. So it's it's, it's a great experience. <laughs> <laughs> and somehow you you found your way to uh, Howard University. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
when I got, got graduated from high school, well, they used to have a, a, a venue in Baltimore called the Left Bank Jazz Society. And, um, you know, Saturday and Sunday, they'd have artists from all over the place. And actually, I was playing with a group with, uh, that my dad was in with uh, Marshall Hawkins, a bass player, and uh, Mike Fogarty, I think, was playing saxophone. But Donald Byrd was playing on the same in the same room, you know, we came up before they did. And he, you know, he had an older band, that Peter Betts was playing with him because he know my dad and all that. So he, uh, he, uh, I introduced myself, oh, you know, but he'd known my father because Bird used to come to DC while he was in Columbia to play on the weekends and he'd set in and play with my dad's band. So he said, I oh, mean, so why don't you come to Howard? I said, well, you know, I really didn't want to stay in D.C. I ain't going to lie to you. I was like, man, I want to get out of here for a minute and see something else. So uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't go to I didn't go to Howard right away. I went to Bradley University in Peoria, Illinois, which is the hometown of Richard Pryor. And, uh, you know, it wasn't <laughs> going to the Midwest was a, was a, 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 a culture shock at best. You know, from from a little country boy from D.C. Colder and, too, huh? Colder too. Oh man, colder too, man. I I took like swimming like eight o'clock in the morning, some craziness or whatever. But uh, uh, it was a wonderful experience because most of the guys that were there were from Chicago. So of course, my roommate was from Chicago, and I got to we started running back and forth to Chicago, playing with Charles Washington and. Uh, uh, um, um, Sonny Seals and a lot of the local jazz musicians, Malachi Thompson, trumpet player, a lot of uh, uh, Mujan Thomas, guitar player, who's been teaching at Berkeley for the last how many years. And we kind of, I kind of grew up there in the jazz world because that was my my roommate, and we'd go to Chicago every weekend in the raggedest possible car we could find and uh play gigs and you know it, it, it was it was kind of cool and then um i came back home and uh they had a concert at howard with uh joe henderson and um i forgot who else was on the show but joe had woody shaw uh hal galper on piano uh stanley clark on bass Pete Yellen on saxophone, Joe Chambers on drums. However, what happened was that um, Stanley Clark and Hal Gapper were playing with Stan Getz at the Blues Alley. And so like midstream of the concert, they, they started packing their stuff up, rolling out. So I was playing, Kevin, Tony, and I, and I had a group called Kaleidoscope. We kind of opened for them. And so I got home that evening and I got two phone calls, one phone call from Horace Silver and another phone call from Joe Henderson. And Horace said, man, Horace said, uh, hey, man, uh, you know, I'd love for you to come you know, play with my band. I said, oh, wow. You know, I have to, let me ask my dad and see what he says. He said, OK. So I hung up. The next minute, Joe Henderson called. He said, hey, man. Uh, Nobody to play my band. I was like, okay, Joe, it is. <laughs> and so I played with Joe for about two years, and then Donald and Kevin came to D. You know, Kevin came to DC, and Donald said, "Well, we were playing together," 
And uh, Donald said, "Hey man, where's where's Keith at? You know, let's 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 hook it up because he had just brought he had Alan Barnes and and Barney Perry were already playing and Kevin were playing with him, but he had Roland Wilson on bass and Joe Chambers on drums and uh, Ray Armando playing percussion, and the old guys and and the young guys just didn't get along. So he fired Roland Wilson and Joe Chambers, and he hired Joe Hall and Keith Gilgo." And I was, I mean, and we weren't really the Blackbirds then. I mean, we were just the Donald Bird Quintet or Septet or whatever it was. And we would play gigs, man. I don't, I don't know musicians ever heard of these gigs before. Well, you'd play in a club for like three weeks. We'd play like in the Burner Spear in, in Detroit for three weeks. We'd play at uh, the Hippodrome in uh, Philly for two weeks. Um, you know, and, and we had these long stints in clubs, which was kind of cool because, you know, you weren't traveling, you know, but you was, you know, you could practice every day and we were, and we rehearsed every day. And, um, so midstream of that, uh, Bird had been conversating with Orrin Keep News. Orrin Keep News, you know, was the exec for fantasy uh, milestone records and he said well man i got this young group you know da, 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 da. long short of it we flew them to berkeley california and recorded our first record which was blackbird with well the you know, crows in the field we do it flew it and all that and we know absolutely nothing <laughs> i i could i mean uh, yeah yeah that okay that was unbelievable because we not we knew nothing. We knew nothing about recording, man. We knew nothing about nothing. So Larry and Fonce Marzell had produced Donald's records. So they were the lead producer, Sky High Production. And Bird was just getting his production chopped together. So he was kind of on the sideline. And so, you know, I didn't have us come in, man, and just play. I just play snare and hi-hat and bass drum. They come back and put some toms on top of it. They come back and put some cymbal crashes on it, you know. And I'd really never played the drum set, you know, and broken up in those little small pieces like that. I mean, I, I had but hadn't. And so we were listening. Let me show you how rookie I was. Uh, we were listening to the playback, and I kept hearing everybody kept hearing this this ding, boing, just this, this this ringing sound. So what the hell is that? Well, it has to be my bass drum. <laughs> he said it was tuned so tight, it sounded like a bongo. So that was when I learned that you had to take the front head off of a bass drum, put some towels and some rugs, whatever inside of it, just to get the click sound or the, the thump sound and then roll into the bottom later. So, I mean, it was a absolute adventure, man. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Um, not knowing anything and then in a year learning how to record i mean for real you know look watching harvey mason and and and, and john garen ed green and you know the professionals how they were burnout hurting how they recorded you know so keith at that point early on i mean who was your playing mostly informed by who were some of your drum drumming influences well i mean in the jazz world of course it was um uh um you know, Tony Williams and Philly Joe Jones and, of course, Boo Hand on My Heart, um, uh, uh, Billy Higgins, uh, Pete LaRocca, 
Mickey, Mickey, you know, uh, Mickey Roca, uh, you know, uh, Lewis Hayes, you know, so many Ed Brooks. I mean, I, I, I listen to everybody. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, no drummers that I didn't listen to. Uh, but, um, what was my man? Uh, uh, and of course, Joe Chambers, but it was another cat. Uh, old cat, Denzel Best from, from Baltimore. Uh, Elvin Jones, of course, you know, uh, uh, Connie, Connie K, you know, with the, with the MJQ, uh, you know, every, I, I listen to everybody, Buddy Rich, Gene Krupa, Joe Morello, uh, so many cats, you know, I, 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 I was, a am I'm, I'm a kind of guy that, um, I, 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 <laughs> Nothing inhibits me from doing what I wanted when I want to listen to. So I listen to everybody because everybody plays something different. Everybody has some different stuff, man. And no one cat just played all of it. Jack Dijonet, I mean, you know, just so many beautiful drummers. So, you know, and that was in the jazz world. Of course, then, you know, uh, uh, Enrique, the play with Sline, Stone, Family Stone, um, my man from, uh, uh, oh, guess, I think his name, uh, oh, of course, Bernard Purdy. And you know the, the funk, uh, Lex uh, Lex Humphreys, the guys that played all the funk, you know, all the pocket drummers, you know, of course Harvey Mason and then Steve Gadd, and you know, I just, I mean, you know, there is no cat that I, if I unless I couldn't find him, that I did not listen to, you know. Wow, yeah. so it sounds like um, you know you were into funk also. I mean, did you feel? Um, limited at all going more in a funk direction um or were you cool with that I, I i was cool with that i mean you know i grew up in the in the in the 60s and you know pretty much uh motown was strong i had a, a, a most of my cousins all girls so i learned how to hand dance and do all that stuff you know in the, in 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 the house on the weekends with my cousins and so you know the pocket didn't have a thing you know, and playing it didn't have no thing because I, I, you know, the repetitiveness of it, I found some joy in it. You know, it, it was it was simple, but it was hard to hold that beat steady, you know, whereas jazz is the, the beat. It plays around the beat and under the beat and on top of the beat. Funk music is on the beat. And uh, I never forget seeing James Brown. James Brown had two drummers. OK. And one of them would be playing just the, the pocket thing. The other one would be playing the cymbal thing, but it sounded like one cat. And I said to myself, man, if, he's, if he needed two drummers to hold this thing down, this thing must be a beast, you know? <laughs> and so as I started listening to Parliament Funkadelic and all that, all that kind of stuff, and, you know, uh, I saw the value of the pocket, you know? And I saw how I could incorporate that in pocket into the jazz uh, and I think as a drummer which, which I don't know how many drummers talk about it um, we are well, the reason either people listen to music or don't if, if they can't dance to it then I don't care what kind of music you have it ain't happening okay I mean you know reggae music you know even even the music Celtic music all, it, all, all it got some kind of groove to it some kind of beat and so I think the, 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 the part of jazz that the Blackbirds was able, able to retain 
was the improvisational part of it because, of course, Donald was a literate writer and all, and all the notes and all that. But the essence of it still had some youth connection and young people could, could sit down and dance to it. And I think without that combination, when you look back historically in, in terms of music, when you go back to Duke Ellington's and all, all those people could dance to this music. You know, and that's what made the music so popular. And if you fast forward to right now, that's what's happening. They dance to Bruno Mars. They can dance to the Wiz Khalifa. They can dance to the, to the, all the, the hip hop stuff. And it is why so many young people don't play jazz or don't like jazz because it's, you know, it, it's more eclectic and it doesn't really doesn't really serve that need that they have. Well, going back to that uh, first record, Keith. Do it fluid. Mm -hmm. I mean, the leadoff cut of the first record, mm -hmm. and just a great, great track. Um, what do you remember about recording that one? I mean, it was as much fun in the studio as it sounds on the record. Yeah, I mean, the Mizell's production style, man, is very loose. I mean, it's you know, we don't even know. It's like some songs that we don't know if it's going to be a B section. We'll be in the studio, you know, recording, and Larry or, or Foss will write a B on a piece of paper and say, B. Now we don't know what key we going to. We don't know what the groove is going to be. We just go to B. Whatever B is, that's what B is, you know? And and that's how we record it, you know? So we have fun. I mean, I sang, well, you call it singing. My father never called it singing. He called it pedestrian vocals. But I sang the lead on uh, Do It Floyd. And what I remember most is that nobody said, no, don't do that. You know what I mean? Nobody said, wait, man. No, why, why are you doing that? No, just, just go. Just go. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Do some more of that. Whatever that was. All it was, do some more of that. And, and I think that kind of grassroots kind of recording, you could call it, you know, that kind of pedestrian kind of feel is where the Blackbirds got their sound from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and did you tour much off that first record or did you wait for the second one? Man, we were touring already. We, you know, that's, that's the whole thing. Bird worked all of the time. It wasn't like we did a record and we had to go out cause we had a record. We would play, we had been working a year or two before we even re recorded the record, you know? And so, uh, the record was just, and be quite honest, by the time that record came out, we couldn't play half the stuff on it. No way. So, you know, we, we just now, after 35, 40 years, I actually able to play it, <laughs> you know. Uh, I mean, I never forget the first time we did, oh God, we did Walking in Rhythm. It was an absolute disaster. Um, because it modulates up a half step from the beginning, you know. And Kevin was in one key and Bonnie was in another key. And I had this double bass drum kit from God knows where. I mean, it was just absolutely disaster. Uh, but we, we played a lot of colleges. Uh, and we, we played um, in Delaware and uh, where, where, uh, where Denzel Washington, he went to college somewhere in Albany, I think. Met him when he was very young, uh, you know, uh, because we did a lot of college touring. But eventually, we started playing on shows with people like, what well, it was called... Um, he, ultimately called Roger Zap, but it was called Roger and Human Body when mm -hmm. when they first started coming out of Cincinnati. 
And we'd play shows like with those kind of bands, you know. And man, we'd get smoked out because I, you know, our stuff was too jazzy or was, you know, one, you know, it didn't connect, you know. And we watch sit back and watch these cats playing. Everybody's up grooving and dancing. Wait, wait a minute, man, what are we, what are we doing here? So we had to come back and revamp some of the stuff. So we started playing the music off of that first record. And the first time we played Do It Fluid, it, I was playing keyboards, okay, because I had another drummer, Kirk Jacobs playing drum. And it was the first time that we actually got an audience reaction, you know, where people actually said, wow, then, you know, yeah. So... Bird was like, oh, okay, so this is where it's at. Yeah, dude, this is where it's at. Okay, all them bebop tunes we've been playing, canceled. <laughs> okay, so, you know, and it just led to the second record and the third record and, and so on and so forth. But but that live that live performance that, that gave us that energy that, you know, we needed to kind of push us forward came from, you know, you know working the circus. But like I said, we were working all the time. So in Walking in Rhythm, which was a little atypical because it was mellower than most of the material, but it hit big. Um, how did that change the perspective and, and trajectory of the group? Well, we, we, we never knew what it did. I mean, we, we didn't write songs that, that we actually listened to. Most of the time we recorded songs, we never even knew what they were going to sound like until they came out on the record because they'd send us home. So, you know, we pretty much didn't know what was going on with them. Uh, I know that musically, the beat that I play on it is a bossa nova, you know, and uh, it, it, it's very jazzy and it's, it's inception. Alan Barnes, uh, if you listen to the float, flute solo, those lines, da -da 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 -do 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 those were lines that Donald Byrd made everybody in the band play. Uh, so we incorporated our education into these songs as well as our own instincts in terms of music. And so by the time Walking Rhythm was doing whatever it was doing, we weren't even thinking about it. We were on to City Life. We had gone on to the next record. And that's kind of how we live. We didn't live like, okay, we did a record, uh, and so where are we? It's like, no, man, forget that record. Let's, I'm writing this song tonight. Let's do this one, you know? So we never had that. Look, I mean, I, I, you know, be quite honest with you, really never listening to the records until years and years later. But you must have heard that on the radio. It must have been a kick to hear the Blackbirds come through the radio. Oh, yeah. I mean, the first time I heard, I don't think I heard Walker. I think the first song that I actually heard on the radio that I can remember is uh, Happy Music and Rock Creek Park. And what I did when that record came out, I went to a radio station here in Washington, D.C. called WOL. And Bobby, uh, Bobby Bennett was the, um, one of the DJs, was a friend of mine. And I left the record on his, because he was on the air, and I left the record on his, at his door. And, um, you know, I got back into my little raggedy little duster and headed on home. And before I could get in the house, he was playing it. Yeah, well, that record was the one that really got me deep into the Blackbirds, and I mm -hmm. think a lot of people mm -hmm. probably come from the same place, um, City Life. Mm. Um, I mean, that record, just wall-to-wall, all-time classic, man. 
Well, you know, I mean, the cool part is that we had built up some, some confidence, you know, and and had an opportunity to really hone our craft, you know. So we were starting to loosen up. We, we were really trying to changing even the stuff that we had done, you know, because we were kind of writing in the same vein as the Mizells, because that's what we learned, you know. And then by the time we got to City Life, we were like, okay, so we had some, like, thoughtful about yourself and some over song got a funny drum beat on we got some different kind of sounds we're trying to do trying to incorporate kevin soon all i asked with harmonica and you know those kind of things so uh yeah it, it it was a record that all of those those you know moments where we were learning had kind of come together for a moment so it was it was a fun to do it was a fun recording yeah, and the kick for me, um, you know, I grew up on the West Coast and just mm-hmm. recently on the East Coast and went to D.C. for the first time ever about mm-hmm. uh, four years ago. Oh, wow. And actually saw Rock Creek Park, and I was mm-hmm. like, hey, yeah, after right. all this time. Yeah, man. Yeah, made the connection. Yeah, so, um, Yeah, but, I mean, that Rock Creek Park, City Life, uh, Title Cut, Happy Music. Um, man, it's just so many great tracks on there. Um, what was the vibe like in the studio, you know, when you were working on some of that stuff and, and, and who directed who, and, you know, did you come up with your own beats? Uh, did you get any guidance or how'd they come together? No, no, I, I didn't get any guidance. <laughs> I certainly didn't get any guidance. Uh, I made up my own stuff. I mean, I played what I heard. I mean, I put it this way. Say if, if I bring a song to the table, like flying high, or love is love or whatever um it, it's my song up to the point that everybody starts to play on it okay i mean i i initiated the the idea the concept but their performance made the song so with kevin's chords uh joe's bass lines orville's guitar barney's guitar alan's whatever you know birds had voices and strings all that stuff it changed i mean it it it, it, it the, the music went from uh, a single idea to several ideas you know what i mean and so the vibe was always was always like um you know um it's your song but it ain't your song you know but it's like well this is my song I mean, it's not that kind of thing you know i the the interpretations the way they interpret the songs the way i interpret their songs that's how they come up with what they came up with i didn't say okay well i i need this baseline like for instance on happy music happy music baseline i was playing bass and joe was playing drums at the rehearsal you know, we would because bird would make us come to the gig like five hours before anybody got there to practice so we'd be in there at one o'clock you know and they ain't even finished cleaning up the room yet and the gig ain't till 10 that night <laughs> so we in there just farting around man i'm playing this and joe's playing drums and we're screwing around and we just come up with this beat this groove you know oh yeah that nice whatever blah 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 yeah okay blah blah and then we take because we taped everything you know and so we had those little morantz tape recorders man we taped everything <laughs> and uh, took back, listened to it, went out to California and said, okay, let's cut this track. Boom. We cut the track. Uh, I I was in the studio, you know, Rock Creek Park, Stewart in the park, do it after dark. Oh, yeah. I came up with that line. That was it for that. Uh, happy music. I, I wrote the, the hook. I didn't write the verses. Bird wrote the verses. Um, 
And so it was a collaboration, whether we liked it or not, <laughs> whether we wanted it or not. Because sometimes they put stuff on your song like, oh, man, I didn't want that on my song, you know, but it's too bad. It's on there. So, uh, you know, uh, it, it was not, it, it wasn't a, a, you know, a contentious thing, but it's just how, how, how it went down. And, you know, we weren't, you know, we were rookies, man. You know, they weren't going to trust us in the studio, you know, with the stuff. But what started happening is we started, because we grew up also not on jazz, but on Hendrix and Led Zeppelin. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a rockhead, you know. And, and I always loved John Bonham, man, and them killer drums, you know, you know, and, and Grand Funk Railroad and Poco Harum and all those kind of groups. So I, I went to watch all of them. And the one thing that they always had was had they had raw, killing guitar sounds, very heavy, smashing drums, beat toms, and bass. And our music was, eh, was kind of weak, in my opinion, you know? And, and so uh, we fought, you know, tooth and nail to get a little more kick, a little more bass. Instead of sense, you know, instead of the guitar sounding like the Isaac Brothers, it sounds like, you know, Van Halen, you know? Uh, that's where we were going, you know? We were pushing towards that, which was starting to, you know, create some friction, of course, you know, uh, with the recordings because, you know, they they'd found this conservative niche, you know, for us, you know, being the guiding light, being, you know, walking in rhythm, you know, and you can't create that song but one time. Songs like, like, like you know, uh, in the night. Some songs can only be recorded and created in that in, in that instance one time. People can copy them and read them. They will never do what that song did that day. You know, it had to do with the planet, the the weather, the temperature, everybody's attitude. That that one day, it all came together. It will never happen again. So you can't try to recreate that on every record after that. Because basically what happens, you start going downhill, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, when the music started to change, because at the end of the 70s, it was starting to go into disco, you know. That's when a lot of other stuff started changing. We didn't have any problem with it, but the, the, the people were used to a certain kind of sound. But those vibes in the studio will never happen again because none of those people are going to ever be there in the same place at the same time anymore. And I, I, I know people in, um, in, in the business don't understand that, but it is really a magical thing that happens once in a lifetime for certain certain things. So, you know, after that point, it was a struggle because we did the next record uh, after Unfinished Business. Uh, we did Action. And yeah, City Life and Unfinished Business. You know, the music was starting to change there a bit. Uh, I think action took it to another level because action had mysterious vibes on it. It had soft and easy on it. Supernatural so, feeling. Supernatural feeling. So it switched around a little bit, a little more funky, a little less, because they would always be putting all them horns and all stuff on it. Uh, a little less cluttered. A little more plucking bass. Yeah, a little more plucking bass because it's, it's changing. You know, the thing is changing. <laughs> You know, and, and so that is probably the hardest thing for any band that I've ever been with is to change with the music. Here goes my lights again. Hold on one second. That's the hardest thing to do is to change with the music. 